Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we turn to in our Bibles this morning. That great and grand chapter that provides the logical implications and as well as conclusion to the doctrine of the believer's justification set forth in the first seven chapters. You see that in the very first verse, there is therefore, everything follows from there, therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We're going to pick up our reading at verse 14, reading through to the end of the chapter. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For that, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we rejoice with patience. Wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness or peril or sore? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus far we read the text for the sermon this morning. is well-beloved and well-known, verse 28. I'll read that once again. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. May he bless the reading of his own sacred word. All things work together for good. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, what a beautiful and comforting promise and word of God we consider this morning. And how timely it is that we do so. On the occasion of the sad events that have transpired in the week past. Your faithful consistory has risen to the occasion and ably responded and provided for you good, clear, faithful instruction over email. And yet, what has taken place still grieves painful. So, beloved, it is my heartfelt prayer this morning that the almighty operation of God, which does not exclude but require the use of means, will work in such a way to minister to you much-needed peace, much-needed comfort, and much-needed that God himself will bless the use of means, the means of his word, and in particular, this promise, this wonderful promise from the word of God, that all things work together for good. Dear congregation, you confess that, don't you? For that being the case, Let's not wait any further in our consideration of it. Note with me then, confessing that all things work together for good. Well, notice in the first place the confession. In the second place, 
those who confess this and conclude with the benefits of confessing. The confession that all things work together for good is the main and central thought of the verse this morning. All things, all things, so says the word of God. And so that's where we begin this morning. All things. Note well, not some things, not many and most things, not even almost everything, but all things. The word of God that we confess this morning is not some things or most things or many, almost everything works together for good. And we, beloved, may be most profoundly grateful to God for that. But what would happen if there were some things? It reads, the text reads some things and most things work together for good. What would happen? We would ask, won't we, which things, which things don't work together for good? Is it this? Is it that? These things over here? Which one? And when we keep on thinking on that train of thought, ultimately, we will all throw up our arms and we will give up on our faith, our religion, our God. All things, says the word of God, and all things is everything. Everything in every department and sphere of our lives. In our personal lives, things recent, Things in the distant past, things great, things small and tiny, happy things, sad things. Also in our church and denomination, things in the distant past, 1924, 1953, distant past, but also things recent, including events this week, things great, things small, things bright and beautiful, things dark, ugly, things happy, things sad, things deep. The context of Romans chapter 8, though, is such that the focus is on the grievous things, the difficult things, the tough things. Note with me, verse 18. To begin with, verse 18 speaks of the sufferings of this present time. Your present sufferings and mine. Still further, verse 22 brings up the fact that even creation 
groans and travails in pain. Creation is suffering. Creation suffers too. And just as creation is suffering, so says the inspired Apostle Paul, so also the children of the living God groan, suffer, and long for a better day. I said the children of God. That's us, isn't it? We are the children of God. We suffer. We suffer many heartaches. We suffer many trouble. We suffer many sorrow. So many, many things cause us to groan in pain and travail all through our pilgrim's life. Then we remember this promise of God's word that all things work together. We remember that with profound thankfulness. All things work together for good. Work together for good. Note here that the text is not all things are good. Understand here, beloved, that that there is a great gulf of a difference between saying all things are good and all things work together for good. Fact is that the Word of God recognizes evil. It acknowledges suffering. God recognizes and understands that afflictions, burdens, and cares weigh heavily upon our soul. He knows that there are many reasons for us to sorrow and to weep throughout our pilgrim's life. Our comfort in God's word this morning is not that we therefore twist our minds and our mouths to thinking and saying that what is clearly and objectively evil in and of itself is good. This is not the comfort of God's word. This is not our comfort. This is not what we believe. That's because the Word of God teaches us not to call the good evil and the evil good. We don't do that. God's Word teaches us to recognize and call evil and sufferings for what they are. Evil and suffering. And as well to call the good The Word of God says all things work together for good. And that includes the evil things, the sad things, the grievous things. Loss of health, 
loss of job, loss of friendship, loss of church member, office bearer, other evils and sufferings that have come our way. All things work together for good. This is God's work. This is he, His promise to us. This is what He said. And that means, beloved, that God is fitting, piecing together all the jigsaw puzzle pieces of our lives. He's fitting them all, beginning with the good things, the happy things, the the things which we, we so cherish and want to remember all our lives. The average thing, mundane thing, so so thing. And then, yes, the, the bad thing, tough thing, the things which we would soon rather just. Yeah. He is fitting and piecing together all these pieces of our lives unto a lovely, lovely picture. That's for our good. For our good. All things work together for Good. That being the case, we ask the question, well, what's the good of the text? What's the good that the Holy Spirit directs us to this morning? Well, open up your Bibles with me once again to the chapter, Romans chapter 8. What's the good that he has his eye on and calls us to have our eye on? Well, Let's notice once again that Romans chapter 8 begins with the word therefore, so that the first seven chapters, recall with me, the first seven chapters of the book had already set forth the need for justification, the, had defined justification, had defended justification, had demonstrated that justification is not some newfangled doctrine, but come from the Old Testament scriptures, has done all of that, and then now we have the, the grand implications and conclusion of that blessed doctrine. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus our Lord. That speaks of the logical conclusion of justification, the most direct one, and then now notice how the Holy Spirit moves away from justification and moves on to sanctification. Verse 1, who, who walk, that sanctification right there, who walks not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That's sanctification. That's the way chapter 8 begins. And from there, the Holy Spirit moves from sanctification glorification. Notice with me now 
the grand end and goal of glorification first set forth in verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that God has an ordained role for suffering in the believer's life, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. That's glorification right there. And sufferings and glorification goes hand in hand as glorification is introduced by the holy inspired apostle here at the point of this chapter. And he continues there with glorification, verse 18. For I reckon again that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Glorification mentioned in a twofold way together with suffering and that note of glorification continues on through to the end of the chapter through a wonderful climax and conclusion, this grand and great symphony of the gospel of justification by faith alone concludes with that grand note of glorification that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Glorification, that's the good that the Holy Spirit has his eye fixed on. That's the good, our good, the good of the text. So that the implication of all of this, beloved, is that all things in our hearts and lives, including especially the tough things, the things that bring us suffering, the things that make us cry, sorrow, and weep, are unto and work together with the happy things, the things which we so cherish, unto your glorification and mine. How do we explain this? Children, are you listening? Children, do you have a beautiful picture in your house? Many of our houses have beautiful pictures. Imagine now if you a beautiful piece of tapestry. You look at that beautiful piece of tapestry from the correct direction, which is the front. And you look at the tapestry and you say, that is absolutely stunning. Glorious! Now what happens when you turn it the other way around and look and behold the tapestry from behind? Everything changed suddenly, right? You see threads going across, crisscross, going over here, over there. You see a, a mangled mess of thread. That's what you see. Well, that's an earthly analogy for how we, the children of the living God, 
behold our lives. On this side of the grave here on earth, and then in heaven. In heaven, when we look back at our lives, we see this is a, a most stunning and beautiful and glorious picture. Wow! We'll say one day. But now when we look at our lives here from earth, we see a mangled mess of bread. So that for now, the children of the living God, when we look at our lives, we see ugly things. We see tough things. We see bad that don't appear to be good in our lives. So that for the moment, for the moment, children of God, behold, this promise of God were not by sight, but by faith. And say, all things work together for good. That's you. And that's me, is it not, beloved? You say that, don't you? Why? What's the reason for saying so? We're all Reformed believers. And so right away, our spiritual reflex is to say this, that we say so because God is absolutely sovereign. He is. He's in total control. God is absolutely sovereign. And realize, beloved, that when we say so, we are saying exactly what Scripture says in the following verses. 29 and 30, the golden chain of salvation. Notice how the golden chain of salvation begins. For, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. God is absolutely sovereign, in perfect control, saving all whom he loves and decrees to save from eternity, preserving them unto eternity. That's the reason. God is absolutely sovereign, meaning he is over all, all from the greatest of events and creatures to the smallest and most insignificant events and creatures, the good as well as the evil, days of prosperity as well as adversity. God is over all. And God is over all because His decree and plan is an all-comprehensive plan, leaving no detail out. His plan is all-comprehensive, but his hand, 
God is absolutely sovereign also because His hand which executes His plan all comes to Him. He is working all things together for good. To those who make this confession. So who, we ask, are they? Who exactly are these who make this confession? Who are those who confess this blessed confession that all things work together for good? Well, to be clear and sure, that confession only applies to certain people. Only they know and only they confess this. Most certainly, not everyone in the world makes this their confession. Certainly not the unbeliever. The unbeliever does not make this confession. For what would the, his confession be when it comes to all things in his life working together for good? Something like this. I am working all things together for my good. I am. Those who are proud and more proud and arrogant will say that. Others will say, at least I'm, I'm trying. Trying. Reason for that? Because they themselves are sovereign. That's how they view themselves. There is no God in their life. They are sovereign. They are in control of their life. Since for them there is no God. Or at least the more honest ones will say it's, it's fate. It's luck. It's chance. Something larger and beyond me that has the final say. That's what the ungodly will say. And realize, beloved of God, that there is no comfort at all for such who say so. When troubles come their way, and sorrow and hurts and pains come their way, or the way of their loved ones, what comfort? I ask you, it's there for them. None. None at all. Oh, I know, there's, there's the pill, there's that medication, and there's the bottle, there's that substance that they look to for their ultimate solution. But there is no comfort. There is no comfort because there is no God in their life. Or if they believe and think that there is a God, they reject Him, they do not acknowledge Him, they hate Him. And when they do so, they cannot confess that all things 
work together for good. Those who confess this are exactly as the text tells us very plainly, them that love God, them who are the called according to His, not ours, His purpose. And His purpose is not our purpose. His thoughts, His ways, His purposes are grander, greater, and higher than ours. You confess that, don't you? But notice the description earlier, as I said, them that love God. Them that love God. That's it. Those who confess this are them that love God. Notice what it does not say. Them that love God with a perfect love. Them that love God with a a strong love. Consistently strong, constant, never failing love. Doesn't say that. And again, thank God for that. That that, that is not His word and promise. For none of us have such a love, do we? And then we would be left comfortless along with the unbelief. The text simply says, them that love God. That's it. Love God. It may be a weak love. It may be an inconsistent love. A love that's sputtering, flickering. The embers of the flame of love threatening to be extinguished. It doesn't matter. What matters and matters alone is this. Do you love God? Do you? You love Him. No. All things work together for good to them that love God. You love God, don't you? For that being the case, know that all things work together for good unto you. You who confess this, know this confession is true and true of you. All things work together for them that love God to them that are the called according to His promise. And we know, the text says that, and we know that, Paul says that, we say that, well, how do we know? How does anyone know this? Just one answer. Only by faith. 
God-given, Christ-earned, true and living faith. This knowledge is a knowledge of faith, a, a knowing and a trusting of Him. It is the trusting and cry of the child of God that says, I know to his father, his earthly father, who says to his son, trust me, son, trust me. And the child simply trusts. That's it. Well, only here, this is our cry. The cry as spiritual children of the living God to our heavenly father, our great, good, wise, heavenly father. It's the knowledge of faith and trust. The context of the text demonstrates that this is the explanation beginning at verse 15 which speaks of the spirit as the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father! That same spirit which maketh intercession for us with groanings which we cannot utter, which cannot be uttered. That demonstrates this as the explanation. We know by faith that all things work together for good. We confess this. And that, beloved, comes with wonderful, wonderful benefits. Many, many wonderful benefits. Too numerous to list and explain and to do justice to. So for our purposes this morning, I'm going to focus on these limited few. There's first and foremost the blessing of peace. We had demonstrated earlier how Romans chapter 8 all connects together as the logical implications and grand conclusion of justification by faith alone. Notice how verse 1 begins yet, yet again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. So what's the benefit that comes from that conclusion? Peace. Peace in our heart. No condemnation. Condemnation is guilt. Condemnation with it then brings restlessness with that guilty conscience and not peace, not at all. But now there is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore peace in our heart. It's a peace that is had and enjoyed no matter our outward circumstances of life and at all times because this is the peace from God through the Prince of Peace who earned that peace to give unto us a peace that ministers not just one time in our lives but all through. A peace that surpasses all understanding that keeps or guards your hearts and your mind in Christ. First benefit, we enjoy lasting, efficacious peace. 
But besides that, beloved, there's also the enjoyment of abiding comfort and hope. For nothing, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death, not life, and that includes our own foolishness and folly, not principalities, not powers, not things present, nor things to come. We don't know what the future is, but we know that even the things that will come in the future will not threaten, will not dull the flame of comfort, hope, work in us by the Holy Spirit. Peace, comfort, and hope are but some of the wonderful benefits that are ours who confess this promise, wonderful promise of the Word of God. And since there are so many, many benefits and so precious, and since He has given us lively faith to confess that all things work together for good, the only and fitting response and note of conclusion to this sermon is that of praise and thanks unto the great God of our salvation and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Amen. Father in heaven, bless this word. Renew our understanding of it, our embrace of it, our appropriating of it, and our deriving of the many benefits that come from it in our hearts once again. Hear us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.